All right, well, we are going to be taking a break from our sermon series in Acts, and over the next few weeks, we're going to be focused on the theme of Advent. And my guess is, I know some of this, but my guess is that we likely have a diverse interaction with this segment of the church calendar. So I want to begin this morning by offering a few comments about what Advent is, because I'm assuming some of us grew up in churches where Advent wasn't a part of it. And so um, I just want to talk a little bit about what Advent is. So the word Advent comes from a Latin word, Adventus. And the meaning of this Latin word is waiting, okay? So Advent is a time and a season where people are focused on waiting. Now, this comes at an opportune time for us as we've been talking about how the book of Acts begins with a call for Jesus' followers to wait for the Holy Spirit to be given to them. And really, there was no specifics given with that, right? It's just wait, and the Holy Spirit's going to be given at an undetermined time and place. So just wait. And we've also talked about how waiting is difficult for many of us. It's just not easy, right? We live in this culture where we snap our fingers, right? And people are supposed to bring us our food uh, when we want it, right? Amazon delivers to our door. We shouldn't have to wait more than two days for things to come to us. So waiting is difficult. And this reality then, that waiting is difficult, emphasizes our need to be faced with it. We need to be faced with this reality of waiting. And Advent, then, is a season that beckons us annually into waiting. To remind us of the importance of waiting. To quiet us in the midst of our busyness. And to humble us in the midst of the many things that we deem important. So there's this call to wait, right? But then the question is, wait on what? Wait on who? Advent is a season that occurs leading up to the celebration of Jesus' birth. So Advent is an exercise in waiting on Jesus, waiting on his coming. And this is relevant to us in a couple of different ways. So first of all, we're leading up to the annual celebration of Jesus' birth, right? So we know this to be Christmas. So there's anticipation for gathering with friends and family, for celebrating, for opening presents. But, so so that's the first one, right? Like, we're waiting for that time of year and that, those celebrations. But there's another time, or kind of waiting that we are also engaged in as well, and that's waiting for Jesus' return to earth, to save his church. Waiting for Jesus to come and fully and finally conquer his enemies. And so, in a couple of different ways, we are waiting on Jesus. And so, over the next four weeks, we're going to look at four different themes that lead up to the celebration of Christmas. And today, we're going to be focused on the theme of promise. So, if we're waiting, there has to be something good, something solid, something worthwhile for us to be waiting for. And this theme of promise helps to provide the foundation for what we are waiting for. 
This theme of promise provides us a reason to wait, and not just to wait, but a reason to wait in hope. So what I want to do is I want to begin this morning by reading one verse from the Old Testament. Then I want to talk a little bit about this verse, provide some contextual comments about this verse, and then finally I want to let this verse preach the theme of promise to us. So this verse, if you grew up in the church, you have probably heard this verse. So let me read this verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Okay, you might be excited like, yes, you've been reading like 26 verses. Now we get one verse, right? Okay, so this verse is the epitome of coffee cup verses, meaning... It's probably found its way onto more coffee cups than any other verse in the Bible. It's also a popular verse to put in a card when someone graduates in some form as well. But I would also say this is probably one of the most misunderstood, misconstrued, misused verses in the whole of the Bible. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. But the reason that people give this to graduates, the reason this gets put on coffee cups, it's easy to understand why that happens. It mentions the fact that God has plans for someone. Right? So, so this infers something, right? This infers that God knows this person. And also that God has meaningful ways to use this person. That there is significance connected to this person's life that they can look forward to. And so this plays well with our draw to significance. Like we want to do meaningful things with our lives. Furthermore, this verse speaks of God seeking the welfare of his people. Other translations besides the ESV, use the language of God prospering his people. And, and really, that, that's not a hard sell for us in the Western world, right? We want to prosper. So much of our lives are oriented around this idea of prospering, prospering our 401k and growing that, right? Making good investments, whether it's in property, in a house, or other types of things. We all want to prosper. We like when we succeed. Okay, so, so we can make these observations, right? But this is where context becomes really crucial. And the context of this verse becomes really crucial. Because our idea of success, prospering, doesn't always line up exactly with God's definition of success or prospering for us. We at times care about things that, are, that ultimately are not of great importance. We, we might think the things we care about are of great importance, but in God's design, they're oftentimes not. And in Jeremiah 29, we're going to find that God's idea of success for his people is mind-boggling to our understanding maybe even offensive to us in terms of what, what God considers to be prospering or success for his people. 
So let's gain a little bit of an understanding of the context of what's going on here, where this promise is being written into. So Jeremiah 29 is found in the book of Jeremiah. Okay, and Jeremiah was a prophet of God, which means he was a mouthpiece of God. So, so God would speak to him, and then he would speak through him to his people, to Israel. So as God spoke to him, then he would bring this message to Israel. And prophets oftentimes spoke about current events, and that's true in this case as well. In this case, the specific events are related to the disobedience of Israel, the disobedience of God's people against God. And this is a part of a letter that Jeremiah is writing to God's people who are exiles in Babylon. Okay, so God's people have rebelled against him. Okay, God gives commands to his people, and over and over through the life of Israel, what we find is that they disobeyed against God. And so their sin against God led them to be exiled from the land that God had given to them. So there was this promised land, right, that God had long promised to his people. Eventually, they got to this land which was flowing with many good things. And then they put trust in things other than God, in kings, in the land, in their own strength. And they turned their back on God. And so then, eventually, this leads to them being exiled from their land. So here in Jeremiah 29, what we're finding is that they are no longer in their land. They are no longer in their homes. They have been sent to a foreign land. So the prospering that they once knew is no longer true for them. The nation of Israel feels heaviness. They feel defeat. And the reason that they're feeling these things is because of their own sin against God. They've got no one else to blame. It's all on them. And yet, in the midst of their ongoing massive rebellion against God over centuries, God is making this promise of hope, this promise of life for his people. And so Israel, you've got to imagine that what they're thinking at this point is like, well, will Babylon be defeated then? Will we get our land back? Is God going to work in, or, or what's the way in which God is going to work so that we can experience success in their mind, right? But quickly it's made clear that the plans of God are likely not what Israel might have hoped for. It's clear that they are not going anywhere. They're not going to be leaving Babylon. This is what they're told in a couple of verses prior to verse 11. It says, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters multiply there in Babylon. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Okay, so th there's some rootedness that's being talked about here, right? Planting gardens, 
you, you don't typically just plant gardens for a year, right? Making families, seeking the welfare of the city. So, so not only are they not going to leave the foreign land, they are being instructed to settle there and then to work for its flourishing. It's almost as though they've become their enemy, right? They, they viewed their enemy as being the sinners, right? But now they are almost like becoming one with their enemy, seeking their enemy's good. This likely does not sound like a good plan for Israel. Very likely it causes them to wonder about God's sanity. What are you doing? It maybe causes these people to wonder whether they want to be part of the hope and the future that God's planned for them. If this is what it means, if this is what prospering looks like, I don't know if I want to be part of this. But all of this goes even further. It's not just this, which this is significant, and this would probably be offensive to many people in Israel. But this promise that we're reading about in Jeremiah 29, 11 goes even further. See, this promise is made in light of God knowing his people are going to be in exile for 70 years. 70 years. That's a lifetime, right? So, so what this means then is that there's going to be people who are born in Babylon and they die in Babylon. And there's this promise hanging over them and they're not going to experience it. It's for their children. It's not for them. And yet, this is the promise given by God. And every word of it is true. It's not invalidated by the fact that his people will be in exile for 70 years. So here's what I want to do. I want to read this verse again. And I want you to think through the filter of these people being in exile for 70 years. But not just that. I, I want you to think through the filter of your own suffering. Because there's truth in this for us as well. Yes, it was written for a certain people in a certain time, no doubt. But it's true for us in a specific way as well. So as I read this, I want you to listen to this through your own suffering as well as through the suffering of the Israel people, Israelite people as well. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. Plans to give you a future and a hope. This is still true for us today as well. In the face of exile, God had plans for his people. In the face of loss, God was speaking of his care for his people and their welfare, 
their welfare in the face of loss. God had intentions of a hopeful future for his people. In the face of circumstances that might cause people to doubt God's goodness and his faithfulness, he is making promises that would seemingly defy logic that would probably seem impossible to them in their given situation. Now, I've said this already, and this is true. If you grew up in the church, you were probably taught this, that we've been taught to read this verse as a good promise from God. And it is. But do you see how this may feel offensive to those in that situation? How it may elicit responses like, well, if you have a future and a hope for us, why not just make that true for us today? Why not fulfill that promise now? Like, we get it. I understand what's going on. It's like when I will talk to my children when they are disobeying and I'm trying to get through to them and still in their anger or rebellion they'll be like yeah I get it I'm sorry right like but there's no sense of actually being sorry they, they don't actually get it and I think the same was true for Israel there's a reason they needed to stay there for 70 years their sin was so deep They didn't understand who God was. They didn't understand his power. They didn't understand his goodness, how he could take horrific situations and still accomplish good through them. And so God gives this promise, and the next 70 years are going to roll out as God intends for them. And this promise of Jeremiah 29.11 in the face of these 70 years, are a microcosm of the whole Bible. God making astounding promises that seem ridiculous and nonsensical, and all of these promises are then pointing towards one person. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises made by God. And this is, this is what we read in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, it states this explicitly. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And this is why we come to this time of year and we will light a candle, though that candle will burn out because it's burning so fast, right? What, why we'll do this? This is why we'll talk about waiting in hope. In the midst of all of our busyness, in the midst of all of our discouragement, in the face of our own suffering, we are still filled with hope. And the reason for this is because of promise. And promises that are realized in and through Jesus Christ. God has made many promises, and they are fulfilled in Jesus So for our gospel application, what I want to do is I just want to highlight a couple of promises that are true for us today, looking at a couple of verses in the New Testament. But before we do that, let me just make a comment here. So we come to this time of our sermon every week, what we call gospel application, right? This is not about what you need to do. We want to remind ourselves This is who Jesus is. 
This is what he's done for us. And, and we don't do this just because we, we want to be unique or different from another church. We're not doing this just to be rote either. The reason we come to this, the point of the sermon and do this is because we understand you are just like whoever's standing up here. And the reality is this room is filled with struggle and hardship. As much as we might want to hide it, not share it, like it's true for all of us, life is hard. We suffer. And if we're not suffering now, we will. Tomorrow, next week. And so when that day comes, we want your roots to go down deep into the gospel. Because all of the promises are true for us in Jesus. Not in you jumping through religious hoops. And this is why we come to the sermon and we do this each and every week. So you would hear and be reminded, the gospel is good news. And you would preach to yourselves, I need to believe this. This is good. This is true. That's why we do this. Okay. So our first point of gospel application is, Jesus promises us peace and trouble and victory which might seem like a weird mixture of things. But this is what he promises us in John 16, 33. He says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation or trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Okay, so there's actually a number of promises in here for us. First of all, Jesus wants you and I to be filled with peace. He wants all of us to know rest, to know freedom. Even in the midst of all the chaos and conflict that fills this world. And then part of the promise is that we will have chaos, we will have conflict, we will have trouble. Because he says, in the world you will have trouble. Okay? So you will have trouble, and God's desire is that you would be filled with peace in the midst of that trouble. Even the fact that this, pro- that this is part of the promise, that, that there will be trouble, should be reassuring. And I think maybe, part, maybe we grew up in a context where we're like, I, I don't even want to hear that. Or maybe we're like scared to, right, maybe you grew up in a context where there's like an encouragement to go be a missionary. Right, but, but I don't want to do that because, man, I don't want to suffer on the other side of the world. And, and I think there's a hesitation in a lot of us. Like, no one wants to choose suffering. And yet, the fact that Jesus promises this should help us understand, okay, if he's willing to say that, if he's willing to say the hard stuff, not to scare us, but just to let us know this is how it's going to be true, and, and then we look at this and we say, that is true. That is our reality. We do encounter trouble. And when we can see that Jesus is truthful with us with that, he, he's not feeding us a line, right? His statement assuring trouble then can confirm 
what else is true here, and that is, if this is true, if the fact that we will have trouble is true, and he's willing to say that, this should inspire confidence in the other promises contained here as well. And we get another massive one here. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Whatever the trouble, and it looks differently for all of us, that trouble is not ultimate. That trouble does not get the last word. It won't win. Its defeat is inevitable. When? We might not know. But it will be defeated through Jesus. And the seed of this promise is found in the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. Jesus was born into danger. There was a king who was threatened by this baby. And so what he sought to do is to kill all the babies to ensure that this one baby was killed. Immediately in Jesus' life, trouble was present. And yet, Jesus was the promise who had come to win. Even the threat of death would not stifle this promise. And we can look at the end of his life and we can say even, not just the threat of death, but even death itself would not be enough to stifle the promise. And so this this is intended to preach to us as well in the face of trouble in the face of hardship, in the face of our own suffering. Don't flinch. Trust Jesus. Bank on him. Don't bank on circumstances being improved. Bank on Jesus, on him being enough, on him being true peace for you in the midst of whatever is swirling around you. Okay, one more. Jesus promises freedom. In John 8.36, we read, So if Jesus sets you free, you will be free indeed. So in our context here in the Western world, when we think of freedom, we oftentimes think of it being associated with happiness or satisfaction or just unrestrained. True freedom True joy, true satisfaction is not found outside of Jesus. Maybe momentarily, but not in any lasting, enduring way. All other efforts to find these things, joy, satisfaction, freedom, outside of Jesus are like running on a treadmill. A whole lot of exertion, but we get nowhere. Jesus is the only destination where we find freedom. So as we anticipate the celebration of Christmas with friends and family, we're not going to find what we look for in presents or a party, not in our family, not, not in stuff or possessions, none of that. What we're looking for, the the freedom, the satisfaction we're longing for is only found in Jesus. And we've got to be relentless to keep coming back to Him. Because the reality is all of us, we're going to keep looking elsewhere 
right? We're going to see that squirrel running across the yard. And we're going to take our eyes off Jesus, right? And we need to redirect our gaze back to him. And so this compels us to ask ourselves a few questions. What are the promises that we are clinging to? Actually, deep, deep down, not, not just flippant surface answers. What are the promises that we are clinging to? Where is our hope? actually. Is our hope explicitly, solely, fully placed on Jesus? Is our current hope today and our future hope fixed on Jesus? In the, in the midst of whatever you're encountering right now, do you believe that God intends good for you? That he has a future and a hope no matter where you find yourself today. It gets really dangerous to read verses like Jeremiah 29, 11 and just flat apply them to ourselves. When we understand the context, we can see how it's really helpful for us, how these are promises that are true for us. But our idea of what is hopeful, what is success, what is prospering needs to be read through the lens of what's going on in Jeremiah 29. And and when we do that, then we can read this verse as speaking to us. When we understand that promises are specifically realized through Jesus, then we can read this verse for us today. So let me read this as we close. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. Plans to give you a future and a hope.